the senior thesis? I cannot. It is absolutely crazy to me that we are finishing up the fourth year of seniors and senior thesis presentations. Uh, such an exciting time. I remember four years ago, we were just across the hall in uh, what's, uh, room 207 uh -huh. and had our three guys, Michael, James, and Evan, mm -hmm. and they were all in their suits, and I think somebody was in a tux. Yes. And to think that we've now grown so much that we were in the management building, mm -hmm. and we like filled a really a, it's a small conference room, but it was basically a conference room. Mm -hmm. It was. It was. It was awesome to see, too, all the kids... Uh, in their professional attire and so prepared and so ready um, to, to, again, to flash back from four years of three to now 17. is just it's very, very awesome to see. Any idea what next year is going to look like with 42? Uh, that conference room is going to be even smaller. Ooh, my goodness. <laughs> I, I had somebody today who asked me, are we even still going to do a thesis when there's 42? I was like, yes, we are going to do a thesis. What kind of question is that? Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to What's the Res, an ongoing conversation about the current world, the current resolutions in the world of high school debate. My name is Josh Herring. I'm a humanities instructor and debate coach at Thales Academy in Rollsville, North Carolina. Today, I am uh, proud to introduce and be joined by my boss, Dr. Melissa Edwards. She <laughs> is the administrator of Thales Academy, Rollsville, Junior High and High School. Dr. Edwards has been an enormous supporter of debate here at Thales Academy, and today uh, I wanted to get her perspective on debate and what it has to do with classical education, a little bit to do with her doctoral research, and in general, why she thinks debate is worth encouraging. Dr. Edwards, thank you so much for joining us on What's the Res? Well, thanks for having me. Well, I am still kind of uh, amazed that you're finally done with the, the doctoral studies. That's such an amazing <laughs> accomplishment. Yes, amazed is a great word. I, too, am amazed. <laughs> has, has it really sunk in that it's over? No, actually, the graduation was this past Saturday, and no, it hasn't sunk in. Um, I think it'll take a while, too. It's still only been two months, so I'm a little not far enough removed from it to actually feel um, like I'm finished but I am uh, I'm looking forward to it sinking in. Well, I, I, I was downstairs a few days back, and I remember you uh, you got your regalia in the mail, and <laughs> I, for one, am very much looking forward to seeing you in those big robes with the puffy sleeves and the really nice eight-cornered hat. So please oh. do wear the hat at graduation. You may have to just, you may have to convince me of that closer to it, because right now the hat is in the box, and that's where it's going to stay. Oh! I know, I know. I'll wear it, I'll wear it. Okay, I, I, there's, I remember at one point you... Um, there was an end-of-the-year celebration, and I had my face smushed and smothered in chocolate pie, <laughs> and you looked at me and told me, now you're a teacher. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You, until you get messy or you get pied in the face, you're not, it's not official. Well, I'm just going to toss it back your way. That uh, <laughs> Once you wear that eight-cornered hat in public, now you're really a doctor, I think. Maybe that's when it'll sink in then. Maybe so. Well. Uh, Melissa, I know you've been in the education game for far longer than I have, and I think longer than really anyone else in our building. Um, <laughs> tell, tell us a little about how you got into, into education and why you love it so much, because clearly you must since you've stayed in education for so long. Yeah, this is uh, year 18, so it's crazy to say that out loud, um, but I've, this is my 18th year. I taught for 10 years in the classroom, and then this is my eighth year as an administrator, um, and if you were to ask my mother this question, she would say that, you know, she knew from, from the time I was able to talk and communicate that I was going to be a teacher because 
I was teaching my brother how to color in the lines whenever he was coloring. And, you know, no, that's not how you do it. This is how you do it. Um, and I would set up my baby dolls and teach them um, from an old desk that my mom had gotten from one of the schools. Um, she would get old spelling books and old science books. And I would just sit and talk to my baby dolls. And, you know, I, I clearly didn't know what I was doing. But um, the, the heart of it was there. And so... It just has been, I think, um, my calling, my purpose um, in this life to be a teacher, to work with kids in some kind of capacity, whether it's in a classroom or, you know, governing a school or teaching online or whatever the case may be. I just, um, I have such a pull towards it that anytime I get a chance to teach, I'm, I'm not going to turn it down. And even though I've, I'm you know, if some would say I'm removed from the classroom, I still step in and teach. I still lead Socratic seminars. Um, and in fact, you know, in November, I jumped in and taught eighth grade American literature mm -hmm. for six weeks. Six weeks. We had, that's right. We had that, uh, that unexpected staffing change yeah. and, and it was a, it was a little bit of an all hands on deck. And I know it, I mean, it, not that we have any, any real issues with this regularly, but it's always nice to see from a teacher standpoint, uh, admin is quite happy to jump in the trenches and figure out of all groups, eighth graders. And <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, I know you love them. I know middle school's always had a special place in your heart. It yeah. was great to get to see you back with them. Yeah, it was, it was a good time. It was a good time. I, uh, you know, it's kind of, <clears throat> it's kind of hard in the administrative role to deal with all the things that I deal with on a daily basis and still, you know, some days still smile or some days still find joy. And so when I got the chance to jump back in consistently every day for three hours, um, there was something about that that just kind of uh, sustained me. Um, and so that was a lot of fun. Yeah, I think there's something that, uh, I don't know, I, I hear a lot, I've heard a lot of um, some legitimate, some illegitimate fuss about teacher salaries in the last year. Mm -hmm. and. Now, and, and not to disparage any of the people who are justly seeking a higher wage for their labor, but I think when those when when teaching's boiled down to just a financial metric, it's really missing the fact fact that there's something so life giving about mm. helping to develop the potential of these children. Well, and you know, it's interesting that we talk about this today, May first, when this is the North Carolina Teachers Rally. And there are 34 school systems closed in North Carolina today to compensate for the 25,000 teachers who are currently in Raleigh, North Carolina, protesting uh, a variety of things, but mainly uh, a lack of adequate um, financial support for teachers. So that's why Rollsville High School was closed this morning. That is why you had very little traffic on the way into school. Which I'm not complaining <clears throat> about. It's kind of nice, but <laughs> Mrs. Herring and I both were kind of like, what? They're closed? We, we couldn't think of a, of a holiday that mm -hmm. fell on May 1st. Mm -hmm. That is fascinating. Yep. 34 school systems were closed. Wow. And, um, you know, I, 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 I can see uh, the intent behind the march. I understand, you know, I have friends that were there and, and they look at it um, from, different, from different lenses. Of course, for me, my thought is, well, what about the kids who have nowhere to go today? That is the question, and I know that, that uh, I remember when we've had other staffing situations over the years, I know that's always been your first thought. It's not so much um, how do we make sure that everything else is taken care of. Your first thought is really the kids, mm -hmm. and, and they really are why we do all of this. Absolutely. Um, I think that if we, if we lose sight of, of the outcome, you know, we've talked about this a lot recently, just don't let the process out, 
uh, overshadow the outcome. The outcome at the end of the day is to educate these kids, to turn mm-hmm. them into, you know, functioning, um, successful human beings. And if we are willing to close the doors and go protest um, something because we don't like how we're getting paid, um, then, you know, I don't think people are in it for the kids. You know, none of us go into this profession because we think we're going to be millionaires. That's not how this works. <laughs> it's nope. not how it's ever nope. going to work. Um, but I think if people lose sight of the fact that the kids are at the heart of this career field, and if you don't like kids, or if in the course of working you choose to, you know, go in a different route, then it has to be because you have let the process overshadow the outcome. Mm, what a fascinating thought. Well, no, I, I, I am curious about your, your thoughts on a different question. If you don't mm-hmm. mind, well, let's shift gears in a Absolutely. different direction. Uh, five years ago, I came to you with kind of a, what in hindsight was not a terribly well thought out idea. I wanted to start a speech and debate club, and I didn't really have a plan. I didn't have a charter. I didn't have student interest. I just had an idea, and you told me, yes, go for it. <laughs> Why on earth did you say yes? Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of uh, creative and innovative thinking, and I'm also a big fan of encouraging others to do what they think they can't do, whether it's something strange, out of the ordinary, um, or within their wheelhouse, but the opportunity is just not there. Make the opportunity, figure it out, make it happen. And if it works, great. But I, you know, I, I'm, I also think that sometimes you have to fail before you can succeed. And if you don't even give people the opportunity to fail, then they will never succeed. And so for me, when you brought that to me, it's, it sounds great. What a great opportunity for our kids. If it works, that's amazing. If it doesn't, then we can go back and figure out why it didn't and do something else next year so it does succeed. But if you don't give it a chance, it won't ever succeed. Well, that, that willingness to uh, really uh, let me, as a first or that would have been a second year <laughs> teacher, try to start my own club uh, was really helpful on my end. And I think it's it's grown over those five years from a couple different iterations of a club to an elective to a regional competitor to a team that next year is going to have two elective options and Amazing. uh hopefully we're, we're eyeing a couple national tournament options and hey just if we if we manage to make find the money maybe an international debating opportunity so uh your encouragement was a a huge piece of that so thank you for for being willing to uh take a chance on a crazy idea <laughs> absolutely i'm a big fan of crazy ideas well, uh, do do help us with some of uh, your your research because I think your your research tangentially relates to what we do in debate, mm-hmm. and it certainly helps create a school culture that is amenable to debate. So, tell our audiences the the, the nutshell version of what what did you do your doctoral research on? Oh. The doctoral research. Um, (laughs) With all the love that you can still find in you for that. I'm trying to choose joy. Um, My focus was on Socratic seminars and can they, uh, over time, develop strong critical thinking skills. And my focus uh, in terms of the demographic was high school students, 9th through 12th grade, at at a private school. And the you know, the outcome obviously was, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely it does. Socratic seminars, Socratic questioning, Socratic instruction, it all lends itself very well to developing um, critical thinking skills, to developing critical thinkers. My chair did not want me to say critical thinkers, so I had to say critical thinking skills in students. Um, but you, I mean, it is what it is. But that was, that was the basis of it. 
in terms of going in and observing Socratic seminars and then observing just regular classroom instruction and being able to see the difference in students interacting with each other, students interacting with the text, um, and, and with, their, with their teacher. Mm. Now, when you say Socratic seminar, I mean, that, that immediately takes me back to Socrates and uh, my favorite nickname for Socrates, the gadfly of Athens, where <laughs> he, uh, uh, by some readings at least, he so irritated the people of Athens that they killed him to stop the irritation. Uh, is, is that what you mean when you say Socratic seminar? Are we, are we trying to teach students to be so irritating towards each other that, that they eventually are punished by society? No, 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 no. No, 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 no. Not so much. Not so much. I mean, I appreciate that, that, that sentiment, but uh, no, Mr. Herring, no. <laughs> and so, so, yeah, what, what, so Socratic mm-hmm. seminar involves, a stu- they involves students, a teacher, and a text. Mm-hmm. Where, where does it go from there? Well, we like to see um, intentional questioning. When the teacher knows the text, I tell the teachers here, and you know this, you can't just print off a, an article from, uh, from any kind of news source and hand it to the kids and expect that you're going to have an exceptional seminar. There has to be a significant amount of preparation that goes into it. Um, and then it's, you know, it's obviously open-ended questions that the students can refer back to the text to support their answer, and they can kind of debate... Um, opposing viewpoints, opposing uh, positions and opinions. But that is, you know, that's basically it. It, You come into a sixth grade classroom, you're going to see something completely different than in a 12th grade (laughs) classroom. But, you know, the framework is still there. The opening core, closing questions, the back and forth between students, teacher kind of governing over the seminar, making sure that everyone's on track, there's a common purpose. Uh, if anyone gets off track, find a way to delicately and yet firmly <laughs> get them back on track. Um, it's a very fluid process, I think. Um, and a lot of people have tried to put it into a box and it has to be formulaic, but it's not formulaic. And you know, much like speech and debate, um, it, it has to kind of evolve. It has to be an organic uh, experience for the for the students and for the teacher. That that organic experience reminds me of uh, one one observation where you came in and and like our, our normal observations. It's the uh, I think this was an unannounced one if I remember correctly. So I wasn't able to plan ahead knowing that you would be in the room. And we had a Socratic seminar on the calendar. And I don't remember which text we were discussing. But as soon as you came in the room, I had that. Uh, I guess pretty natural teacher nervousness. Oh no, I'm being observed today. <laughs> and you sat down at the desk and I just went about my business. And uh, But then suddenly I kind of forgot that you were there for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about something and one of my favorite students, so I won't name because two, the students, of course, they're all my favorite. Absolutely. But mm-hmm. one of my favorite students who I often disagree with because we have very different perspectives on the world, uh, brought what in my mind was a ridiculous answer to one of these questions. And I started literally just debating with him. Mm-hmm. And then, and the heart of that, I remember, oh my goodness, I'm being observed today. And I'm fighting with one of my students <laughs> in a seminar. But you didn't mark me down for that. Instead, no. you joined the seminar. You pulled up a chair <laughs> and suddenly you were ready to take on the whole group. I remember that vividly because I don't, I, I, I remember the moment. I remember the observation. But I could not stop myself. It was like an out-of-body experience. I just felt drawn into it. It was magnetic. I could not join. And it was so hard for me to not speak. I just wanted to be closer to it. 
but I wanted to jump in so bad. Oh. That was so hard. Well, I, I find Socratic seminars are, are really, they, they remind me a lot of some of the best debates. This doesn't happen with every debate resolution. Sometimes debate resolutions do end up having far more ground on one side than another, especially mm -hmm. when they're poorly designed. Mm -hmm. But with the best written debate resolutions, students can really approach the resolution from both sides. And by debating, at the end of the debate, they really settle on a view that they own. And it seems like that's what Socratic Seminar really fosters in students and in teachers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, you know, there's, there's this idea that um, truth is subjective, that there is no real truth. And, uh, you know, here at Thales Academy, we would, we would strongly disagree with that. It is, there is a truth. It's, you know, beauty and order and truth and all of those things are very specific and intentional. And while we want the students to, um, you know, arrive at a certain destination, they have to take the journey to get there. That's right. And so that, that journey is important in terms of them maybe going in with one idea or, you know, metaphorically starting on one road. And by the end, they have now joined a completely different road and are in a different direction. Um, and that, that, to me, is always fun to see. And that's always, it should be somewhat of the goal of being able to come in with one idea, hear the discussion, look at the evidence, and then go, okay, that's not exactly what that was supposed to be. I'm going to switch over, and I'm going to join this side. Um, <clears throat> but, yeah, there is... At the end, there should be an outcome of whether it's mastery of knowledge, whether it's, you know, retention of information, um, or it's that they feel confident in the position that they have taken. Hmm. Well, those are, those are some great outcomes, and I, I, I really... I've loved watching and participating in our school, developing a culture of Socratic seminars. And I think it's, um, I, I never like it when we get those emails with new requirements that we have to hit. But it has honestly been a helpful thing to need to have to do a minimum number of Socratics according for class. Mm -hmm. And that really, I, I've noticed that since we've all had to do that, my students have gotten so much better mm -hmm. at uh, Socratizing is usually my <laughs> verb for describing this whole process. That's awesome. That's good to hear. Well, uh, we've been using a word uh, kind of interchangeably, and uh, let's just, one of my uh, debate principles is to always start with defining our terms. Mm -hmm. uh, you, of course, administer at, and I teach at, a classical school. Mm -hmm. uh, some of our audience members may not be familiar with that term. Could you help them know what a classical school is and what makes it different, maybe, from some other forms of education? Oh, my goodness. Um, so let me start with the the last question which is what is it what makes it different um <clears throat> it is it is literally the opposite of any school that you're going to find in this area where they teach a certain curriculum they teach unit-based math they give end of course exams they give end of grade testing um standardized by north carolina they teach to a North Carolina standard course of study and uh, have to hit certain benchmarks along the way. There's testing every two to three weeks mandated by the state. Um, significantly different from that. Our school follows and believes in uh, educating the whole child. Now, I know people say that, and I know lots of superintendents like that phrase, but I am, I am proud to say that here in Rollsville, that is what we do. A classical education is, you know, getting them to, to learn how to think. It is providing them with cornerstones. Like, that's how I always like to look at it is, is there are cornerstones to this education. There's Latin, there's trivium, there's the humanities, and there's the math and science. 
And so without any one of those pieces, the building can't stand, the, the, the framework can't stand. Within that, you know, we have the arts, we have all kinds of other opportunities for students to be well-rounded individuals. Um, but at the end of the day, we want them to come out of our program with a depth and breadth of knowledge that their peers do not have. I, I think our students often find that. I, I distinctly remember some of our first graduating class uh, students. They were they went to the uh, National Junior Classical League, and uh, I think it was in Texas that year. Mm -hmm. And at that convention, they they did what they what they normally do. Those guys yeah. are very gregarious. They love meeting new people. So they went out and they talked to a whole bunch of people. Well, and when they came back and were telling me about this, they told me that. A lot of the people that they talked with, they ran out of things to talk about with because they these other people had not read the books they've read. Mm -hmm. They didn't know the stuff that they knew. And it wasn't a matter of kind of a snobbish, insulting, I'm smarter than you. It was literally, well, they wanted to discuss, they wanted to find out what these students thought of Dante's Inferno or Chaucer's Canterbury Tales mm -hmm. or the latest chemistry uh, laws that they had been studying or so on. And these other students were just not prepared to engage in conversation. When they found other classical school students, suddenly it was as if they had found kindred spirits mm -hmm. and people who also loved learning. Yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting to me to to know about our seniors and our their our graduates who are off in a variety of different locations. And I like to imagine the conversations that they're having with their peers <laughs> in the college world. Um, and I, I like to think that they're holding their own and that they're using what we gave them to make an impact or to affect change in a positive way. But it is, it is um, always interesting to me to see what we're able to provide to these students. Um, and then when they go out into the big world, um, they recognize, hey, you know, that wasn't so bad. They knew what they were doing. I should have been a little bit kinder to them. Let me go visit them at lunch. And so they do. They do. I, I think I've seen uh, several members from last year's class. They love to come by and they always shake my hand. I have one who loves calling me by my first name now that he's a graduate. He does that every time he comes through. That's hilarious. And so funny. And yet I'm not surprised. No. No, no. Well, uh, let's let's do. Um, do. Does that classical school impetus? Does does the kind of schooling you're describing that's focused on all of these different domains of knowledge, and with this Socratic emphasis, does it have any uh, specific connection to debate? Do you see those two pairing well in some way? Well, ab I mean, absolutely. I think it's it's kind of inherent in what we're doing. It's um, it's almost like. It's such a part of it that you don't realize it's a part of it, if that mm, makes mm -hmm. any sense. Sure. Um, <clears throat> because whenever you're teaching your speech and debate class, when I go in and watch, when I'm observing, it's, it's not unlike a Socratic seminar. It's not unlike going into um, a biology lab and, and listening to them, you know, debate over how they're going to dissect and who's going to do this and who's going to hold the scalpel. And that's about as far as I can go with dissections because <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm a literature teacher. <laughs> Um, but, but just, it's, I think it's inherent in, in everything that we do. Um, and it's almost like we have to draw attention to it because we forget it's even there. Mm, that's, that's a great point that really it's so baked into the classical methodology. Mm -hmm. It's been really fun to be able to, uh, take students who are steeped in that because they've, some of those kids have been with us since kindergarten here at Thales. Yep. And then to hand them some of the tools that national competitive debate has developed and watch them soar even mm -hmm. further because they can bring those two things together. 
Well, I am curious if, uh, if, if debate and persuasion plays a role and kind of uh, really less on the student and teacher angle and more on the admin level. Uh, you administer a school of roughly 600 students and somewhere around 40 faculty. Mm-hmm. Do you ever find yourself using the tools of rhetoric and debate and persuasion as part of your role in leading our school community? I mean, I think that's a... <laughs> That's a daily daily activity for me. Um, <clears throat> in fact, that's why it's it's quite difficult for me to go into a Socratic seminar and not jump in because uh, I feel like I'll, I do a lot of debating and a lot of persuading in my interactions with parents and in my interactions with the the greater community. Um, <clears throat> I'm I'm constantly working to diffuse a situation, to face a challenge positively, to partner with parents, to work through situations or challenges. And I know that if I come into any of those conversations, um, any of those emotional, um, emotionally charged moments, if I am anything more than kind and gracious and willing to listen, it's not going to end. It's not going to be productive. And so I, I typically first seek to understand, then to be understood. And sometimes in trying to be understood, I have to weave my way around and into certain situations using persuasion, using rhetoric, being very intentional with my words so that at the end of any kind of challenge or situation, um, it's ended, it's concluded, it's resolved positively. That's not to say every situation I deal with is is (laughs) resolved positively, but that's always the goal. Um, I'm a parent. I have two kids. I know what it's like as a parent to come into a principal's office and have concerns. And most of the time, people really just want to be heard. Um, but at the same time, the perspective, uh, while they think the perspective is reality, very rarely is the perspective reality. And so, get, you know, working through it, weaving through it, finessing it, massaging the whole situation to get people to the reality requires a lot of persuasion. It really does. I think it's 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 similar to the hardest part of competitive debate in that the easy part of competitive debate is writing your constructive speeches, whether affirmative mm-hmm. or negative, because you can prepare for that. You can research that. The hard part is when you get to that second round in the mm-hmm. debate where suddenly you have to respond to what has been said, and you never know what that other person's coming in with. We we had a lot of surprises. The, uh, the winners of our last uh, Luddy Debate League tournament brought a surprise arguing about asteroid mining as the solution to America's national debt. None of us had thought of that one before. Oh, my goodness. They ended up winning the tournament on a surprise argument. Oh, but wow, that's creative. <laughs> very, very creative. But that, that's how debate goes. Yeah. The best. And, and it's part of what, uh, I, I know you don't like the conflict side of your role, but I, I, I'm sure it's certainly never boring. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not ever boring. Um, and I, you're right, I don't like the conflict side. I don't like... Um, I don't like it when parents are upset, and um, I certainly try everything I can do to diffuse mm-hmm. and de-escalate situations, but um, getting people to see opposing viewpoints, whether it's in a Socratic seminar or in a parent-teacher conference, is never an easy thing. No, no, it's not. Um, uh, it, it's, uh, I'm certainly grateful for uh, your, your role in helping us as faculty sometimes to appreciate the parents' point of view, because we can certainly often get kind of locked in our... Uh, if only I was a professor in the ivory tower, this is what I would do. But we're really sixth, seventh, and tenth grade teachers who are not in college, and we need to remember that our students are actual children and human beings. And yep. 
not just uh, soon to be in college people who mm -hmm. should already be there, something like that. We, we can get very off track sometimes, yeah. we teachers. Well, uh, I distinctly remember my first year teaching that uh, you still had a class uh, that it was the third class in your uh, public speaking sequence. Uh, and, and so tell us a little bit about why you held on to teaching. I mean, you had already moved into administration at that point, but you kept this class. Out of all the classes you could have kept, you kept public speaking. Why was that? And maybe if you have any particularly uh, fond memories of that class that you could share on the show, that'd be great too. Oh, my goodness. Um, public speaking to me just seemed like the easiest most natural course to include. We, at that time, had a very limited set of electives, and there was really nothing in there for speech and debate, for public speaking, nothing in that realm. And so um, at the time, I was I was actually running two campuses, <clears throat> and so I was in the, um, the campus where I offered the public speaking class. I was there Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And so I offered public speaking on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And... It was just, um, again, it goes back to what I said earlier. It was, it was sustaining. It just sustained me. There's this, you know, there's this part of me who um, needs to be with kids, educating them in some way, shape, or form, aside from, you know, offering discipline as a principal. Um, and so that was, for me, just a very natural thing to do. And I held on to it because, um, quite frankly, I just couldn't let it go. Um, and I was forced to let it go. When the students uh, moved out of eighth grade and moved into ninth grade, and I knew at that point I had to let them go because there were other electives they wanted to take. But for three years, I had a tremendous amount of fun. And <laughs> I distinctly remember first year, they were sixth graders, <clears throat> and who is now a senior uh, came in and did an um, informative speech on space junk. Space junk. Space junk, yes. And, and he used that phrase for it. Yes, he did. Not trash. Nope. Space junk. Space junk. All right. Space junk. He had a poster. He had made <laughs> pretend um, examples, like tin foil balls. Um, I mean, just you just you can't even imagine. But um, he stayed with me for all three years, that entire series. And then when he did his senior thesis just yesterday... I could not help but just remember this, this little guy who was trying to tell me and convince me that space junk was a major problem in the world. And, uh, and then when he presented yesterday and he was presenting yet another major problem in the world, it was, it, was, uh, it was kind of full circle for me to be able to see. And just to have a moment of, I might have had a little hand in that. Well, certainly that uh, I remember that presentation and uh, that that student's passion and conviction that this is a solvable problem was a very encouraging kind of thing. Just to be able to look at what he sees to be a problem and say, okay, this is not we're not uh, powerless in the face of these forces. We can do something. That was itself encouraging. Yeah, yeah, um, and innovative and creative and. You know, not real sure how realistic <laughs> it might be, but you know what? He sold it. He oh. sold it, and, and I was beyond proud of him. He did, and uh, that student also had some of the most, he had the most creative approach to his thesis presentation out of all 17 in, uh, in this year's class. And he had three years of public speaking. That's it. That's it. Well, I think it's safe to say your, your influence definitely came all the way through in his uh, thesis presentation. Well, 
Uh, Dr. Edwards, let's, uh, we're, we're probably coming close to time for our discussion today. So let me ask you one last question. Okay. What, uh, most of our listeners, I, I assume, I don't really know, I just have the stats section of our podcast website to base that on, but I think most of our listeners are middle school students and high school students, many of them right here at Thales Academy Rollsville, mm-hmm. who are trying to become better at public speaking and at debate. Mm-hmm. Because like all of our students, they want to win. Yes. <laughs> Do you have any advice that you would offer them from your perspective as a, a professional woman with many years of public communications experience? What advice would you offer them as to how can they kick it up a notch in their public speaking and their debate? Uh, well, that's the, I, have, I have two pieces of advice. The first one is you can never be too prepared. And doing the legwork, doing the homework, persevering, digging through it when you don't want to, when you're tired, when you've looked at it a thousand times and you can't look at it once more, uh, when you've practiced it and to the point where you can you can recite it backwards, um, you can never be too prepared. The other one is words matter. They matter. Um, and so be intentional with the way that you speak and the words that you use, whether that's in speech and debate, whether that is in your daily life. Words matter. And, um, you know, I, I like to think that... Um, we here at Thales are very intentional with our words, but I also know that we're also human. And so working as hard as you can within the realm of speech and debate, and then also just in 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 life, um, words matter. That's, a, that's an excellent point. And I, I think one of the things I uh, try to stress in all of my classes is that often I will put uh, word count minimums and maximums on papers and students always ask me, okay, what, what do I have to hit those numbers? And I, I usually tell them yes. But what I really love seeing is when students move to the point beyond needing either a minimum or a maximum, mm-hmm. and they reach the point where they say what they have to say in exactly the right amount of words. Yep. It's not flowery and fluffy to get to 750 when they don't really have 650 words worth of content. Right. It's also not minimalist and spare. It just hits that exact right note. And that's that's one of the things I think that really our... our but the, the culmination of our whole education here at Thales is moving towards. Sure, absolutely. I agree 100%. Well, Dr. Edwards, thank you so much for this conversation. Thanks for having me. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Josh Herring. I'm a humanities instructor and debate coach at Thales Academy in Rollsville, North Carolina. My guest this episode has been Dr. Melissa Edwards, administrator of Thales Academy, Rollsville Junior High and High School, and and, uh, a now uh, doctorized expert on Socratic (laughs) education. If you want to get in touch with us, please email us at whatstheres at gmail.com. That's W-H-A-T-S-T-H-E-R-E-S at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at what's the res underscore. If you like what you've heard, give us a five-star review on your favorite podcast or iTunes app. And until next time, work hard, speak well, and seek truth.